Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 56. Last week, I wrapped up the history of the Hittites. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm starting the Aramenes. In the first to probably two episodes, the Aramenes, well, when the term is used to refer to the people, not the man, were first found in Genesis chapter 25. I'll cover both the people and the man in this episode. So let's get started. Aram was the Hebrew designation for the nation of Syria. So the Arameans mentioned in the Bible are Syrians, meaning simply that they inhabited the area known as Syria. But to be clear, they were distinct from the Assyrians. And over the years, this has led to a great deal of biblical historical confusion. Take the passage found in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 6 as an example. In the King James, as well as the American Standard versions, the Hebrew word is translated as Syrian. But the New Revised Standard and the New International versions translate the base Hebrew to Aramean. But before getting into the Aramean people, a little background on the man named Aram, who it is thought, at least according to the Table of Nations, to have been the forefather of the Arameans. In the Table of Nations, Aram is a son of Shem, and therefore the grandson of Noah. The passage also lists Aram's brothers as Alam, Ashur, Arachashad, and Lud. Aram, in Genesis 10, is said to be the father of Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. But note that 1 Chronicles chapter 1 lists Shem's sons as Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Meshech, seemingly contradicting Genesis 10. But the general interpretation is that the overlap is simply that Shem's grandsons are listed as his sons in this passage. Also, one other point, Mash and Meshech are assumed to be the same person. As is true with almost all the names in the Table of Nations, there are no outside sources that confirm the names as the fathers of the nations. The meaning of the place name Aram is somewhat uncertain, but there is the belief by some that it means highlands. The proponents of this theory propose that it is the opposite of the meaning of Canaan, and that is lowlands. Then, of course, throughout the Old Testament, the place name Aram is combined with another word that somewhat changes the meaning. For example, in Genesis chapter 24, the phrase Aram Naharaim is found. This phrase is thought to mean the highland of the two rivers. And the recognition that Aram is the son of Shem is quite unsurprisingly not limited to the Jewish and Christian faiths. Aram, the son of Shem, is recognized as a prophet in Mandeism. A quick sidebar on that religion. Mandeism is a Gnostic religion. Now the term Gnostic is worthy of an explanation, but to truly explain it would take perhaps an entire episode. So, a knowingly incomplete definition is that such religions exist somewhere between irreligious phenomenon and an independent religion. In the Western world, when someone says they don't believe in God, but are spiritual, this could be considered a modern version of Gnosticism. I may explore the topic in depth at some point, and if that does occur, it will be soon in the history after Christ, when Gnosticism reached its peak. Anyway, 
Mendeism held a strongly dualistic worldview. Those that practiced the religion venerated Adam, Abel, Seth, Enos, Noah, Shem, and Aram, and even more so John the Baptist. To them, at the other end of the spectrum, meaning these three were not revered, was Adam, Moses, and Jesus. Like most other Gnostic religions, Mandeism originated sometime in the first 300 years AD, after the Mandean people immigrated from the southern Levant to Mesopotamia. This migration occurred around 100 AD. The Mandeans eventually settled in northern Mesopotamia, and the religion continues to this day. In fact, there are thought to be about 70,000 practicing Mandeans on the globe today. Up until the fall of the Iraqi Republic, and please note that it was Republic in name only. Anyway, after Saddam's government fell, and with the rise in Islamic-centric violence, most Mandeans fled the country, reducing the population of adherents to less than 5,000 by 2007. Overall, the Mandeans have segregated themselves from outsiders, but they still practice today. Back to Aram. Aram is also recognized by Muslims. More on that in a bit. The generally understood borders of the area known as Aram comprised a wide region to the northeast of what is now Israel. It is thought to have extended to the Euphrates River and included parts of Mesopotamia. Within this region were many major cities, including Damascus, as seen in Genesis chapter 14, and Hamath, as seen in Numbers chapter 13. As a prelude to next week's episode, where I will cover the history of the Aramaeans, it was once a loose confederation of cities that slowly unified under Damascus around the beginning of the first millennium BC. In the Old Testament, the Arameans are thought of as being somewhat related to the Hebrews, and lived in northern Syria around Haran beginning about the 16th century BC. In Genesis chapters 24 and 25, when Abraham set about to find a wife for his son Isaac, he sent a servant to the land of Aram, as found in Genesis chapter 22. A man known as Bethuel the Aramean, who was from Paddan Aram, is named as the nephew of Abraham, father of Rebekah, and therefore the father-in-law of Isaac. Bethuel's son and Rebekah's brother Laban is also referred to as an Aramean. In Genesis chapter 27, Laban is said to have lived in Haran, a city also in the area known as Paddan Aram. Then there is a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 26 verse 5. For context, this passage explains to the wandering Israelites how they are to make offerings after arriving in the promised land. It also traces their origin back to Abraham. In the passage, it is either Abraham or Jacob, maybe both, who are referred to as a wandering Aramean. This reference is potentially because both Abraham's mother and his grandfather were from Mesopotamia and could be thought of as Arameans by the Hebrews. And this is curious as it tends to imply that the Arameans were people from a specific region, not an ethnic group. It was during the reign of King David, as seen in 2 Samuel chapter 8, that the Arameans of Damascus came to the aid of King Hadadezer of Zobah. It didn't go so well for either of them, as David and his troops killed 22,000 Aramean men. 
The passage goes on to say that David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David and brought the Israelites tributes. Later, in the same book, in chapter 10, the Arameans joined forces with the Ammonites in a war against Israel. You think they would have learned, especially after losing 22,000 men, but then again, maybe they were bent on revenge. Anyway, David and the Israelites again defeated the Arameans and kept them as tributaries. Apparently, and as seen in 1 Kings chapter 4, their tributary status lasted through at least the end of King Solomon's reign. And, even after Solomon's reign, the Arameans continued their resistance to the rule of the Israelites. In 1 Kings chapter 20, King Ben-Hadad of Aram fought with King Ahab of Israel. Israel won this time, too. The Israeli victory, at least in this case, was short-lived. It was in 2 Chronicles chapter 18 that, to quote, So the king of Israel and King Jehoshaphat of Judah went up to Ramoth-Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself, and they went into battle. Now the king of Aram had commanded the captains of his chariots, Fight with no one small or great, but only with the king of Israel. When the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, It is the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For when the captains of the chariot saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow and unknowingly struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. So he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. The battle grew hot that day, and the king of Israel propped himself up in his chariot facing the Arameans until evening. Then at sunset, he died. End quote. Not to forget, there is quite a different interaction between the Arameans and the Israelites. The prophet Elisha healed a man named Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. But Naaman wasn't any ordinary man. Naaman was the commanding general of the army of the king of Aram. And, at this time, Aram was an enemy of Israel. But Naaman was suffering from leprosy, and apparently suffering enough that he took the advice of an Israeli slave in his wife's possession. He traveled to Samaria and eventually found Elisha, who healed him. Of course, such a miracle caused a faith conversion for Naaman, who exclaimed, Now I know that there is no God in all of the earth except in Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 6, the Arameans attacked Israel and even surrounded its capital, which at the time was Samaria. Later, in chapter 8 of the same book, the prophet Elisha predicted that the Arameans would set the Israelites' fortress on fire, kill their young men with the sword, dash into pieces their little ones, and rip up their pregnant women. It was such a pleasant time in world history. Later, in the same chapter, the Arameans fought the Israeli king Haram and wounded him. Since history sometimes repeats itself, in 2 Chronicles, King Yohash of Judah was handed the same fate by the Arameans. Finally, in 2 Kings chapter 24, 
Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians, who were aided by the Arameans, the Chaldeans, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. The Masoretic text of the Old Testament uses the Hebrew word generally understood as being pronounced as Arami for Arami. Of course, I'm not a native Hebrew speaker, and I probably just butchered that word. But it is a different Hebrew word that is translated to Syrian or Aramean in 2 Chronicles chapter 22, verse 5. So, from these passages and others in the New Testament, it can be determined that what was referred to as the land of Aram Naharaim, which literally translates to Aram of the two rivers, included both Paddan Aram and the city of Haran. A different but proximal region included the cities of Aram Damascus and Aram Rehob. Then there are the two cities that David wrote about in Psalms 60. These were Aram Naharaim and Aram Zobah. Remember that Aram Naharaim is mentioned in Genesis 24 as an area to where Abraham's servant traveled and met Rebekah. It was mentioned again in Judges chapter 3, where it reads, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of King Cushan Rish Athame of Aram Naharaim. And the Israelites served Cushan Rish Athame eight years. Aram is also found in the pseudographic book of Jubilees in chapter 9, where it actually lays out the land inherited by the sons of Aram and therefore assumed to be the land of the Arameans. Specifically, it states that Aram's kids inherited all the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, to the north of the Chaldees, to the border of the mountains of Ashur, and to the land of Arara, essentially northern Mesopotamia. Then, in chapter 8, it expands the territory. The mountains of Ashur in the north, and in all the land of Alam, Ashur, and Babel, and Susan, in Medea, which roughly equates to what is also called Persia, Assyria, Babylonia, and Medea. Now, and I recognize that I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but this roughly aligns with areas where the Arameans have been positioned from outside sources. More on that next week. Remember the Ebla tablets? I covered them many episodes ago, but a little refresher. The Ebla tablets are a collection of about 1,800 full clay tablets, 4,700 fragments, and many thousands of minor chips. The find was uncovered in what has become known as the Palace Archives, located in the ancient city of Ebla, Syria, hence the name. All of the artifacts date to the period between about 2500 and 2250 BC. The tablets are currently stored in Syrian museums in Aleppo, Damascus, and Italy. The tablets provide evidence on life in Syria and Canaan in the early Bronze Age. They also include the earliest known references to the Canaanites, Ugarit, and Lebanon. Finally, they show that Ebla was a major trading center. Like many other uncovered artifacts, there were a great deal of economic records. Also, there were descriptions of Ebla's commercial and political relations with other cities in the region, and the political and economic records intersect where it shows that Ebla was credited with the development of an advanced trade network system between many of the city-states in northern Syria. Finally, these tablets included mentions of the Arameans. One more thing. Many tablets include both Sumerian and Ebalite inscriptions, 
specifically with side-by-side word list, a Rosetta Stone of sorts. And as such, a greater understanding of both languages was at hand. But the tablets don't say Aram specifically, instead using the word Aramu in a list of geographic place names. There was also the word Arami, which is thought to be the Ebalite name for Idlib, aka the modern Aleppo. This phrase, probably due to the close economic relationship between the cities, occurs quite frequently in the Ebla tablets. In other tablets, these from Akkad, a ruler named Naram Sin, who reigned from 2254 to 2218 BC, shows the association of Arman, probably Aleppo, with Ebla. These tablets were, of course, written in the Akkadian language. One tablet covered the exploits of a military campaign where Naram Sin apparently captured Dubul, the ruler of Arami. This victory is thought to have occurred during a campaign against Simurum in the northern mountains. Other tablet-based references to Aram have been found in similar archives uncovered at Mari in eastern Syria and dating to about 1900 BC. Not to forget, but tablets were found at Ugarit on the Mediterranean coast of western Syria and date to about 1300 BC. Tilgath Pilesar I, who was the king of Assyria from 1114 to 1076 BC, mentioned the Arameans too. In his inscriptions, he said, quoting, I have crossed the Euphrates 28 times, twice in one year, in pursuit of the Arameans. End quote. But there is also speculation that there was an independent city named Arman, east of the Tigris River, which could potentially be the cause of some of the confusion. In Islam, a prophet known as Hud, hailing from ancient Arabia, is believed by Muslim scholars to have been a descendant of Aram. He traces his lineage through a man named Ad, who is believed to be the son of Uz, who was the son of Aram. As for the religion of the Arameans, they shared a deity with Ugarit, specifically the god Hadad. In fact, this idol is thought to be their patron deity. Sometimes he is referred to as Raman or Rimon. In fact, Rimon is called out in 2 Kings chapter 5. Their chief goddess was called Atargatis, but she was most likely a fusion of two Phoenician deities named Asharte and Anath. Overall, and like many of the polytheistic religions of the region, their religion wasn't theirs alone. Instead, their pantheon included Canaanite, Babylonian, and Assyrian gods. As gleaned from uncovered inscriptions, they mostly worshipped the pantheon of the Assyrians and Babylonians. In addition to Hadad, there was Sin, Shamash, Tamuzu, Bel, and Nergal. From Canaan and Phoenicia, there were deities such as the storm god El, the supreme deity of the Canaans. They did have a few deities of their own. So how did they come to adopt so many? Well, some Arameans would immigrate to other regions from those areas and then return. Not to forget, the reverse would happen and outsiders would move to Aram. For what it's worth, the king of Aram was known as Ben-Hadad and I couldn't find if he was treated as a deity or not. So how about their language? 
And this is an important point considering that Jesus spoke Aramaic. Arameans, for the most part, used a West Semitic Old Aramaic language. In fact, this language was predominant in the region for over a millennium, from about 1100 BC and lasting until about 200 AD. At first, it was written in the Phoenician alphabet, but since language evolves, it eventually morphed into a distinct alphabet. By the 8th century BC, there were only a few dominant languages in the region of the Levant and Mesopotamia. These were Aramaic, Akkadian, Assyrian, and Babylonian. But to be clear, Akkadian and Babylonian were primarily written languages. After that time, Aramaic began to spread throughout the region, to the point that by 800 BC, it had essentially become the official language of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. When the Greeks came marching through the area with Alexander, Aramaic took a backseat as the official language, but it remained as the most common spoken language, especially for the Semitic inhabitants, until the Islamic conquest of Mesopotamia in the 7th century AD. Eventually, Aramaic would become the liturgical language of Syriac Christianity. Why is this important? Well, while Christ spoke Aramaic, remember that the New Testament was originally written in Greek. Thinking back to the Bible translations episodes in the first chapter of the podcast, and all of the painstaking measures that the translators took to wordsmith from Greek to English, I wonder how the translation process occurred from Aramaic to Greek. I'm sure I'll never know. Over time, as you would suspect, the language evolved into several dialects and is even used by some descendants of the Aramean people today. These native speakers are found primarily in northern Iraq, northwest Iran, southeast Turkey, and northeast Syria. And some of these people have immigrated to other countries such as Armenia, Georgia, Russia, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, and Azerbaijan taking their language with them. Of course, there are smaller communities spread across the globe. And that's probably a good place to end this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll wrap up the history of the Arameans. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. And this week, I received a couple questions from a listener named Ben. So please allow me to take a moment and address, as I'm certain Ben isn't the only person wondering about these things. First, he wanted to know if I spent much time in formal study. Well, I have about nine years of college, and not any of that time was spent on an extended plan. But about half of it was spent specifically on history. Which, to some degree, I guess, makes me a historian. Not that there's any specialized designation for the profession. Second, he wanted to know about my religious leanings. I'm always hesitant to bring my own beliefs into the discussion, as it could be seen as tainting the history I cover, and I have worked hard to keep my opinions and beliefs out of the discussion. But, to answer his question, I was reared in the American Protestant tradition, and not in a single denomination. I have regularly attended Baptist, Presbyterian, and other services, I have also, but not as regularly, attended Catholic, Methodist, Lutheran, Anglican, and Episcopalian services. Finally, Ben asked if my beliefs have changed over the course of my studies. And that's a hard question, 
As I've matured and aged, my beliefs have changed, but not in any fundamental way. And I can't really say it was due to my studies. When we are children, we believe like children. It's very simplistic. But when we are adults, we believe differently. My studies in the podcast have not changed my beliefs. And to be clear, my faith is not based on the Bible being correct, even though I believe it is. Remember, Christianity existed before the Bible, and I will cover how that happened when I get to that point in the history. But to be succinct, the first Christians had no Bible. They did have the ancient Hebrew text, and the religion survived, grew, and thrived before the New Testament was written. And to circle back, the only thing I can definitely say that changed my thoughts on God was having children of my own. It certainly made many things more clear. Thanks for writing, Ben. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes, or wherever you receive the podcast from, and leave a positive review. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.